0: Well, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. If you would get a Bible out, open it up to Second Chronicles chapter 28. Second Chronicles chapter 28, whether that's a paper Bible or a digital Bible or a scroll or whatever you might use to be looking in the Word of God, let's be doing that right now. We'll be looking at some verses here in the beginning that I'm going to guess probably are not familiar to many of us, so we need to be looking in the text together. Second Chronicles chapter 28. As you're turning there and as you're getting settled in for uh, this part of our worship, let me take just a quick moment or two to say a word of gratitude to this good church. I know that when you come to the end of a, of a meeting or even just a weekend meeting like this, the preacher wants to get up and say some thank you sorts of things. And I know there's folks sitting in the audience. and There's visitors that are like, come on, just get on with it, get on with the preaching. But, but when you've been treated very well, like I and my family have been treated uh, these last couple of days, I just we just would feel like a heel if we didn't express our appreciation. We do want to thank you so much for the invitation to get to be with you uh, yesterday and today. Thank you so much for just the, the warm, hospitable way in which you have uh, welcomed us into your number. We feel just like we just feel right at home right here at College View, and that's just... Uh, that 's saying a lot and i don 't say that everywhere that I go, but I would say that about about this congregation i 'm thankful for for you and for your love for truth and your stand for truth and for your uh, desire to see uh, truth be taught and to be uh, taught and brought to to young people and taking an interest in them and uh, having some focus lessons that are designed to help them and encourage them, and so I thank you for that. I do want to say thank you to all of our our young people i 've been looking over here a lot uh, these last couple of days because a bunch of them are clustered here, but there 's clusters over here and clusters right up here and all around throughout the building and they've just they 've just conducted themselves in a in a, in a most noble way, you've listened well and so many of them have, uh, came up to me and made comments about the lesson and things of that nature and that's just been real encouraging when you, uh, get around young people who care about God and care about His Word. And so thank you. You've, you've built me up. I know I was brought in to kind of be the one to do the encouraging, but, uh, edification works both ways and I'm thankful that, that I've got to be here for these few days. Thank you so much for everyone for your good attention and for your, your kindness and your kind words. Uh, for a young-ish whippersnapper preacher like myself, uh, being told encouraging and nice things, that's just nice fuel uh, for the fire, it keeps me going. Lots of Mountain Dew too, that also keeps me going uh, a lot as well. But uh, just thank you so much for a good couple of days. We look forward to getting to be back with this church at some point in the future, even if it's not in this capacity, to get to just be with you and get to worship with you once again. So, so thank you for these couple of days that we've had together. We have been talking this weekend about the idea that the Bible is God's how to guide for life. And indeed it is. It provides us everything that we need. It provides us everything so that we, so that we, excuse me. I'm very self conscious today because I'm dealing with a terrible sinus cold and maybe even a sinus infection, not entirely sure. I took a Z pack right before services that Brother Wade had called in, so I don't know what effect that might have on me. I might i might do something crazy in the middle of the lesson tonight. I don't know. We'll see. Um, So bear with me a little bit. But the Bible does make us complete. It has the ability to make us complete. If we will allow it, it equips us for every good work. It helps us with everything that we're going to face in this life. Matters that pertain not only to eternity, but the matters of this life and how we navigate our way through this world. And we've been talking about this how-to idea in a very positive kind of sense. Some things that the Bible helps us with in a how-to sort of way. How to find the right person. This morning, how to maximize Bible reading. How to cultivate quality friendships. Ideas along those lines. But this evening, I want to conclude this series by kind of maybe putting a different spin on that. The Bible certainly shows us lots of good and positive things. Good examples, good people that we want to try to emulate and to follow. And they've been placed in Scripture for that reason. The Bible also shows us some things that are that are negative, that are designed to serve as an example as well, that we would not go down that road. And I'd like to get us thinking in that direction right now in 2 Chronicles chapter 28. Read with me in verse number 1. 2 Chronicles 28 and in verse 1, we're told about Ahaz. Now Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign in Judah. And he reigned 16 years In Jerusalem. What's it like to be the king? What's it like to be the king at age 20? That wasn't just a hypothetical question for this particular guy. For Ahaz, that was a reality. He was the king in Jerusalem. He was the successor to his father Jotham, who had brought the nation into a time of great prosperity and peace and security not having been matched since the days of his forefather, King David. It was good. You asked Ahaz what it was like to be the king, it was good. It was really good to be the king. The text doesn't stop in verse 1. Would you continue on? Verse 1, Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. He made offerings in the valley of the son of Hinnom. He burned his sons as an offering according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had drove out before the people of Israel. He sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Ahaz, those four verses tell us, was a terribly wicked king. He did not follow in his father David's footsteps. In fact, drop on down in the text of verse 22. In verse 22, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that had defeated him and said, Because the gods of the kings of Syria helped them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God. He cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. He shut up the doors of the house of the Lord. He made himself altars in every corner of Jerusalem. In every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord, the God of his fathers. Man. It's easy for us to read those verses and all of us just shake our heads in disgust. Man. What an awful, terrible, evil young man he was. But what I really want to know, instead of us just shaking our heads and just talking about what a terrible guy this was, what I really want to know is how that came to be. Ahaz's father and his grandfather were faithful men of God, weren't they? It's not all that hard to imagine Ahaz, maybe as a young man, maybe at the age of of five, sitting there at the feet of the priest, listening and learning the law of God. It's not hard to picture Ahaz as a young boy, maybe at the age of 10 or 11 or 12, committing to memory large chunks of the Torah. That's those first five books of the Old Testament, as Jewish boys commonly did. But somehow, somehow and in some way, between those early childhood years and when he became king, it all went away. Somehow, by the time he was 20... He had lost his faith. And unfortunately, Ahaz was not the last. I have known, and I'm going to assume that you have known, too many young people who were fine young Christian boys and girls at the age of 12, 13 years old, but who had quit serving the Lord by the age of 20. Despite parental involvement, despite sound teaching, despite congregational encouragement, they abandoned Jesus Christ and they gave up their faith. And while some young people, part of the reason that that happens is some young people do have just miserable and ungodly parents who just utterly failed to raise their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I also know as well many young people who gave up on Jesus Christ not because their parents were abysmal. No, their parents actually did Everything they possibly could to teach them, to instruct them, to set the example for them, to pray for them, to serve them, to encourage them. And still, and still that child grew to an age where they decided, I don't want this anymore. I'm done with this. They chose to forsake the Lord. And I will tell you this afternoon that it is time for us to lay responsibility for that at exactly the doorstep where it belongs. And that is at the footsteps of that child, that young man or that young woman who chose to serve sin and to serve self and to serve Satan. And what I'm really most interested in, young people, is how does that happen? What causes that progression to take place? Because when you're 10 years old, Your mom and dad control your life. But when you're 20, generally speaking, you control your life. And in that gap, as you mature, as you change, as you grow, there are things that you do, there are decisions that you make that will either deepen and strengthen your walk with God, or it will absolutely destroy it. And this afternoon what I want to do is I want to share with you three of those things that young people do that just virtually guarantees that by the time they're 20, they won't be serving God anymore. Are you ready for that? This is a sobering lesson. Number one, if you're going to be a spiritual failure by the age of 20, then maybe a good starting point is for you to just make certain that you never, ever stand up for Jesus. If you have a big group of people, and we've got a big group of people, a big diverse group of people here in this building right now. If you were to take a big diverse group of people with all kinds of different backgrounds and different prosperity levels, different educational levels, different personalities, if you have this really diverse group of people, what could you do to, to weld all of those people together really, really quickly? What could you do to get those people to just bond together really, really fast? Well, that's really easy. When you have a diverse group of people and you're trying to bring them together, what you do to bond them together is you make them suffer. Think about it. You put 25 people on a cruise ship and you sink the boat out from underneath them and they then have to spend three weeks, four weeks on a life raft together. That'll bring those people together in a hurry, won't it? Or you put those same number of people in a skyscraper, a skyscraper that's on fire, and they then have to work together to try to escape the flames and the danger of that skyscraper falling out from under them so that they do not die. That will weld those people together really, really fast. Or if you put 25 young men right in the line of enemy fire, throw them into a foxhole together while they're being shot at, you make them suffer, suffering will bond them together quickly. In those kinds of situations, your skin color, and your political party, how much money you have, or which side of the tracks that you grew up on, none of that stuff makes any difference anymore. Suffering has a way of connecting and bonding people together like nothing else can do. And you know what? That's true in our relationship with Christ. Do you know that? When we suffer for Him, when in essence we are suffering with Him, that bonds us to the Lord. Look in Galatians 6, please. In Galatians chapter 6, as Paul is bringing this epistle to a close, he makes this statement here toward the end. In Galatians chapter 6, look in verse 17. In Galatians chapter 6 and in verse 17, Paul says, "...from now on, let no one cause me trouble." For I bear in my body the marks of Jesus. Paul wrote that Galatian letter to churches that were infested with Judaizing teachers. There were people who were saying that Paul, ah, he's not really an apostle. You don't need to listen to him. The easiest thing for Paul to do then would be to just, just kind of acquiesce to those folks. Just kind of go along with them. Okay, if that's what you say, well then well then that's fine. I, I, you know, I'll, I'll just kind of sell out the gospel a little bit. Make some compromises here and there. And then Paul wouldn't have to be under fire any longer, right? And yet right here at the end of this letter, Paul says, I will not compromise on Jesus Christ because I have suffered for Jesus Christ. He says, you can see in my body that I have suffered for the Lord and I'm going to keep on suffering for Him, standing for Him. And so let me ask you, young person, just how much suffering have you done, are you doing for the cause of Jesus Christ? If it is shared hardship that bonds us to the Lord, then I want to know, the Lord wants to know, what kind of hardship are you enduring for Christ? You can be certain that Jesus has absolutely known His share of suffering, right? Jesus suffered terribly on the cross of Calvary. He suffered in a way that our our minds really can't even begin to fathom or to grasp. In fact, in some ways, I think Jesus maybe even suffered even more in the hours and the moments leading up to the cross, even before the physical torture. You read about Him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Man, what pain, what suffering He endured in those hours as he contemplated and anticipated what was to come. Jesus has suffered. The question is, are you suffering for Him? Somebody maybe says, well, well, Josh, we, we live in America. We're very blessed in this country. We don't have religious persecution. We don't have to worry about that. We have the freedom of religion. Okay, look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3... Paul writing this to Christians, certainly to Christians then and to Christians today. Paul having no thought whatsoever of the United States of America or the freedoms that would be afforded in that country. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 12. He says there, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you are truly standing up for Jesus, if you are living a distinctly Christian life, then Paul says there's going to be some times when you ought to feel ostracized, when you will be ridiculed, when you will be mistreated. That's the way that it's always been for God's people. It's the way it was in the Old Testament, it's the way it was throughout the New Testament, that's the way that it's been ever since. In fact, that explains why Paul says what he says in the previous chapter. Just fall back to chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2, look in verse 3. There Paul says in verse 3, he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Are you doing that, Christian? Are you doing that, young person? Are you enduring hardship as a soldier so that you can be bonded, welded together with Christ? Young people, are you standing up for the Lord? suffering for the sake of righteousness. The truth of the matter is, if you want to lose your faith, if you're kind of tired of all of this and you're looking for an out, well, right here's your your starting point. Just don't do any of that. Don't do any of this stuff that Paul just said in Timothy. Don't be a brave soldier. Don't stand up for Jesus. We sing that song. Don't do that. Don't be someone who stands up for Him and just is willing to endure anything for Him. Don't be that person. Instead, just be cowardly. Instead, just be a closet Christian. When the kids say, hey, let's let's go to that party. Let's go over there. There's going to be booze. There's going to be pot. It's going to be a great time. In that moment, what you want to say is, is you want to say, oh, I'll tell you what, um, I can't do that because... because if my mom and dad found out, they'd kill me. Yeah, yeah. I can't go because my mom and dad would kill me. You don't ever want to say in that moment, no, 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 I'm a Christian. I can't go there. I can't be involved in that. That's against my values. That's against what the Word of God says. Don't say that. Don't stand up for Jesus in that way. When a bunch of the gang are maybe going to that rated R filthy movie, there's going to be all kinds of profanity or nudity or ungodly material. What you want to say when you get that invitation is is... Uh, um, uh, I've got homework to do, yeah. Yeah, I've got homework to do. I can't go because I've got to go home and do that homework, don't you know? Don't say in that moment, well, that's filth. That's trash. That's sinful and ungodly and we shouldn't pollute our minds with that kind of stuff. I don't want to be watching something that glorifies sin. Don't say that. Don't stand up for the Lord. Or when someone makes fun of the Bible says it's an an outdated book. It's old, dusty, filled with errors and contradictions. You can't trust the Bible. When somebody mocks the Lord Jesus Christ, takes His name in vain, runs down the Lord's church, don't stand up. Don't confront them about that. Don't refute them about that. Instead, just quietly stand by and just let it go on. Just do everything that you can to... To fit in, just kind of blend in with the scenery. Just kind of be camouflaged with everybody else. Make certain that no one can actually see your Christianity. Don't undergo any of those trials by fire that the Bible speaks of. Don't ever know about those butterflies that well up in the pit of your stomach whenever you carry the sword of the Spirit into spiritual battle. No, don't do any of that. Just be a secret Christian just say nothing, just do nothing, and very soon, maybe by the time that you're 20, you will be nothing. You will have lost your faith. Just like this second idea that is guaranteed to bring about spiritual failure in your life. And that is, be sure to make decisions in your life without any regard for the Lord at all. Make decisions for the future without any consideration for Jesus in the here and in the now. You know, it is in many ways just positively terrifying how many decisions that you have to make when you're a young person, when you're, when you're a teenager. Because a lot of the choices that you're going to be making during these years of your life, they really will set the tempo... And they will set the course and they will set the pattern for the rest of your life. As a teenager, for example, you're making decisions about your education. Which, of course, is going to affect the decisions about your career and about where you're going to live. Right now, you're making decisions about who to date. And that, of course, is going to affect the decisions later on about about marriage and about starting a family. And hopefully, if you have not already by the time that you're a teenager... You're making the really important decision, most important decision, to obey the gospel. These are critical and formative years for teenagers. Because the decisions that you are making now about those things, they will contribute largely to who and what you will become later on in life. Jesus talks about that in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount as He brings this glorious and powerful sermon to a conclusion. Jesus does not end it with a whimper. He ends it with a bang. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a parable about two men. In Matthew chapter 7, this is a little parable really. It's really a parable about planning. It's a parable about planning and thinking thinking for the future. In Matthew 7, Jesus says this in verse 24. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now, as I was reading that parable, some of you behind the pew were probably secretly doing this number back there because you probably remember doing that in Bible class as a youngster. And that's okay. But you realize, don't you, that this story is all about deciding beforehand. It's about the important kinds of choices that you have to make ahead of time so that you can be be prepared. Because when you've built your house over here on the sand... You can't check the Doppler radar and notice, oh, yep, looks like the storm's coming in. I think the storm's coming, okay. I I think we need to get a solid foundation under there now. We need to slide a solid foundation, slide some concrete under our house now. Can't do that. Don't have that liberty. Can't do that then. Doesn't work that way. You have to see the value of a solid foundation way before the house is ever constructed. You have to be willing to pay the price. Dig down deep before that house is built. You've got to get settled on the rock first. And Jesus says that the wise person is the one who decides first to serve the Lord and then build their life on the words of Christ. And so let me ask you, young people, what kind of choices are you making in light of that first choice to build your life on the Lord. For example, when it comes to your career and what your plans are to earn a living in life, is the Lord factoring in to that equation? Have you, have you given any thought to that? Does Jesus get a say in that? I remember a couple years ago, I was in a gospel meeting and I met a young lady, a young Christian lady, who was, I think she was still a teenager actually at the time. But she was determined that once she graduated from high school, that what she was going to do is she was going to move to Hollywood and she was going to become an actress. And I I really was kind of floored when she told me that. And when she there was not a hint of joking or sarcasm in her voice, she was dead set that this is what she was going to do. And I could not help but just ask her, Sister, how are you going to do that? How is that possible? How exactly do you intend to work in an industry that is just saturated with immorality and ungodliness of, of every kind? How are you going to find steady work as an actress when you're going to have to be constantly turning down roles and parts that are going to require you to use filthy language or to expose parts of your body that should not be exposed? How are you going to do that? How are you going to be involved in something that opposes the values of the kingdom of God. How exactly is that going to work? I'll tell you how it works. How it works is, is you spend lots of money, and you spend lots of time, to go and pursue after your dream. And I kind of, I chafe a little bit when we just tell kids, follow your dream. That's not necessarily good advice. No, follow my dream. Put all this money and all this time and all this effort into pursuing this thing. And what happens is, is in your pursuit of that thing, you start to make little compromises, not big compromises, but little compromises here, little compromises there. Before you know it, those little compromises become medium-sized compromises. And over the course of time, those medium-sized compromises start to become big compromises. And before you know it, you are then fully immersed in that godless culture and godless lifestyle. And Jesus, Jesus is left behind. But we didn't leave Jesus behind right then. No, we left Jesus behind a long time ago. And you don't have to have big, bold dreams of being an actor or an actress or a rock star or a professional athlete in order for you to leave the Lord out of your decision-making and your career plans. What about, for example, what about taking a job where you cannot assemble regularly with the saints to worship the Lord? What about that? What about choosing to go to a college, to go to a school where there's not a local church anywhere nearby? There aren't Christians nearby. You don't know anything about that area, but I'm just going to go there. Here I am, I'm going to invest all this time, all this money, going to give four years of my life to go somewhere where there's no church, there's no Christians, people who can help me to walk with God. How exactly is that going to work? Do we somehow imagine... That if we leave Jesus out of these decisions now, that somehow later on, it's just going to magically turn out that we become strong, faithful Christians? Is that how we think that's going to work? What about who you date? Talked about that last evening. What about who you date? Some young person is liable to respond now, Well, Brother Josh, I'm not going to marry everybody that I date. Duh. I know that. But I'll tell you this. You're going to marry somebody that you date. One of those people that you date at some point, that's who you're going to marry. And you know what? That may not turn out to be as happily ever after as you thought that it was going to be. Especially if there is no thought for that boy or that girl's spirituality. That was the main point last night. When all we look at is physical attributes or popularity or how much money they have or what a stable life they have, they've already got a house and all these things or some other kind of superficial criteria, what we are doing is we are setting ourselves up for a mighty, mighty fall. The kind that Jesus described right there in verse 27. Tell me right now, what are you building your house on? You're building it right now. We'd like to tell ourselves that, no, I, I build it later. No, 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 no. You're building it right now. That's happening right now. It's almost sometimes like young people. It's sometimes even worse as parents kind of help help fuel young people in this. But it's almost as if young people think that they can just drop Jesus now during the teenage years and then they can kind of just sort out all of these decisions on their own. I'll I'll figure these things out. I'll go to college where I want to go. I'll pursue the career that I want to pursue. I'll date the kind of person that I want to date. And once I've got all of that sorted out and figured out on my terms, well, then I'll start back up being a Christian on Jesus' terms on the other side of that. How foolish. How foolish. Young people, you cannot slide a solid and sturdy foundation under your house once you've already got your house all built. It doesn't work that way. If you make choices now with little to no concern for whether those decisions will take you away from Christ, then you will find that you have taken a giant step toward losing your faith by the time that you're 20. Finally then, would you find Proverbs the 14th chapter? In Proverbs chapter 14, probably the most surefire way The most surefire way that you can lose your faith by the time you are 20 is for you to convince yourself that you are just absolutely bulletproof. Why is it that young people make bad decisions from time to time? Somebody would maybe say, well, I think peer pressure has a lot to do with that, and that's probably some truth to that. There's no doubt about that. Peer influence is Is a grave concern. I understand that. But come on now. Why is it that young people let their peers talk them in to the things that they do? For example, why do young people let their peers talk them into smoking cigarettes? Everybody knows that smoking cigarettes is bad. Everybody knows what smoking cigarettes does to you. You can't even read the package for a pack of cigarettes without seeing all those warnings printed right there on the package itself. They run those commercials all the time, the the truth commercials and those types of commercials. It's out there. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows you smoke cigarettes, you're going to get cancer, and you're going to die. Your life's going to be miserable if you do that. So the question is, why do kids still do it? I'll tell you why. It's because they think that they will be the exception. They think that that's not going to happen to them when they watch the commercial with the woman who's got the hole right here in her neck. And she can't even talk. They think, that's not going to happen to me. That'll, I, that'll never happen to me. They think that they are bulletproof. Same thing goes for drinking alcohol, or using drugs, experimenting with drugs. Everybody knows the dangers of that stuff. We've all seen the commercials, we've all read the statistics, we've all seen the stories on the news and the movies that have been made about these things, about the pain and the heartache and the death that those things bring. And yet young people continue to get involved in those things. Why do they do that? It's because young people convince themselves that they are bulletproof. They are operating under the delusion that all that bad stuff that happens to folks, all that bad stuff that adults are warning me about, well, well that stuff happens, it happens to that guy, or it happens to that girl, it happens to somebody else. Me? Not me. Me? I'm, I'm untouchable. I am immune to that. I am, in many ways, invincible. And you know what? There's, there's something about that, that attitude, that I think maybe it's kind of admirable to a degree. Think about it. That's the reason that we allow 18-year-old boys to enlist in the army and we put a rifle in their hands and we send them overseas and go to war. Why do we let them do that? It's because they think they're bulletproof. They do. They they plunge full speed ahead into battle. They think nothing's going to happen to them. I think there's something somewhat noble about that. But most of the time, most of the time that's not... A noble quality, that brazenness, that just bullheadedness. Because what happens is, is the preacher gets up and the preacher rails on all the evils and the perils of sin. And he cautions everyone here about all the youthful passions that young people are susceptible to. And what happens? What happens is, is young people sit in the pews and they hear all of that and they think to themselves, not me, you're not talking to me. That's not going to happen to me. i will never have evil companions. Yeah, evil companions may cause other people problems. That's not going to be a problem for me. I'm never going to have evil companions. Other people may get carried away with, with all kinds of stuff. Other people may get carried away in the backseat of a car. And that leads to a pregnancy. Or it leads to a sexually transmitted disease. But me? No, that's never going to happen to me. Other young people might be tempted by drugs and alcohol and that whole lot. But not me. I don't have to worry about that. I can handle the pressure. You don't know me and what I'm capable of. I can handle that pressure. I am bulletproof. Do you know what the Bible says about that, young people? The Bible says that's the way of the fool. Do you notice we haven't read that verse yet in Proverbs 14? Let's get it now. Proverbs 14, look at verse 16. Proverbs 14, verse 16. One who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil... But the fool is reckless and careless. One translation says, the fool is arrogant and self-confident. For me to think that the warnings of the Bible, they apply only to, to everybody else, that is foolish and arrogant. In 1 Corinthians, let's get the New Testament equivalent of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Look in verse 12. See what this verse does for your bulletproof mentality. In 1 Corinthians 10 and in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. You realize I could stand up here the whole rest of the afternoon and I could just cite example after example, verse after verse from the Bible where people had to learn that principle the hard way. Now, maybe what I could do for these last couple minutes is I could share with you a more contemporary example of that. Do any of you know the story of Ricky Blackman? I know some preachers that have told the story of Ricky Blackman before. Ricky Blackman grew up in southeast Texas. He was the son of a gospel preacher. Grew up in the church, so to speak, a very sound church. And at an early age, he was baptized into Christ. And he participated heartily in the worship and helped take part in the things uh, in the service as a young person could do in the very congregation in which his father preached. However, when Ricky became a teenager, he started getting around with the bad crowd, started hanging around with some of those evil companions, started messing around and experimenting with marijuana, started dabbling in alcohol, and he started to form a relationship with a very wicked woman. Ultimately, he ended up in the Texas Department of Corrections, the TDC. It's really a nice way of saying that Ricky went to the penitentiary. While he was incarcerated, he wrote this letter, and he asked this letter to be shared with young people in other churches of Christ, and people who had grown up in churches and very familiar with his upbringing, um, folks who grew up just like he did. And he wanted that letter read. I'm going to read to you a portion of the letter that Ricky Blackman wrote. He said this, He said, are you listening to me, young people? Wild women, drugs, fast living. Look where it got me. Don't think that it can't happen to you. Because if you find yourself on any of these roads, you will sooner or later run into a situation that may hurt not only you, but will hurt your loved ones as well. And when you say, oh, I know what I'm doing, believe me. I said the very same thing. In the back of your mind, you know who you are. And if you say to yourself, like I said to myself, I know what I'm doing, then the TDC has a number for you. Mine is 000893. And if you're thinking, well, that's kind of a low number, well, that's because Ricky Don Blackman was actually inmate number 893 on Texas's death row. Ricky Blackman got high on drugs and he went one night with a wicked woman to rob a man and to get money for more drugs. He ended up in the heat of the moment killing that man. In Texas, robbery and murder, that's a capital crime. And so on August the 4th, 1999, guards came to the cell of Ricky Don Blackman and they walked him down the hall and they strapped him to a gurney He was then given a lethal dose of poison, and he was executed. I tell you that story so that young people will think very carefully about this last point. Young people, when the Bible warns you about evil companions, it's not talking to everybody else but you. It's talking to you. When the Bible tells you, That you need to obey your parents because they love you and they want what's best for you. It doesn't mean everybody else ought to listen to their parents and they ought to do what their parents say and it doesn't really apply to you. No, 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 no. That verse is talking to you. And when the Bible warns you about sobriety, intoxicating drinks and drugs and sexual immorality, it's not telling you that stuff so that everybody else can be warned and you don't have to pay attention to those warnings. No, it's talking to you. And the Bible's telling you that. Because Ricky Don Blackman, he wasn't bulletproof. And neither are you. You and I, and everybody in this room, young and old, we are amenable to, and we need, and we must, obey God's Word. But the moment that you think that it doesn't really apply to you, then you can pretty well chalk that up and mark that down as being the moment when you have brought spiritual failure upon yourself. Now, if you were to go back to 2 Chronicles, and if you were to continue reading the Ahaz story, what you'd find is that King Ahaz, ultimately, he lost the glory of his kingdom. But even worse than that... Scripture seems to indicate to us that he lost his soul. And I will tell you, young people, that there are far worse things than being laughed at by the other kids in the hallways at school. There are far worse things than being told by somebody, well, you're just not very cool. There are even worse things than being on death row like Ricky Blackman. Because what if on the day of judgment you are standing before God and you've lost your faith, And in that moment, you can't find it. What then? I am pleading this afternoon, as I have attempted to plead over the course of these last five lessons, for our young people to think very seriously about the course of their lives. There's not a one of us really in here who does not need to soberly consider our standing before God and to make preparations so that we can be ready and get right while we have time and opportunity. In just a moment, our brother's going to lead us in that song that's been selected as a song of invitation. If you're using a book, you can be turning to that song right now. That song's going to give all of us an opportunity to think very seriously about our standing with the Lord. Where are we? If we think that we're bulletproof, we are just setting ourselves up for the worst kind of failure. We're going to fail in this life But even worse, we will fail eternally. What we would hope that you would come to realize this afternoon is the fact that you're not bulletproof. You come to realize that you are a sinner. You are in need of God's grace. You're in need of His mercy. You're in need of His forgiveness. The good news of the Gospel is, is that God is abundant in those departments. He wants so much to shower His blessings upon people who will turn to Him. Can we help you this afternoon to come to the Lord in obedience to the gospel, confessing your faith in Jesus as God's Son, repenting and turning from sin, turning to the Lord. And let us bring you into union with Jesus in the waters of baptism, being joined with Him in His death, burial, and resurrection. You can come up out of that water something entirely new. A Christian, man. Be called lots of things in this life, but just not really anything better than to just be called and be known as a Christian. A child of God. Can we help you to do that? If you're of an age of accountability, we want to help you to that end tonight. If you are a, ch- a child of God, you're a Christian, but you've not been living faithfully for the Lord, maybe some of the things that we've talked about this weekend have resonated with you and it's caused you to seriously examine the course of your life and where you stand with God and you realize, I'm just I'm just not doing it like I ought to. Repent of that. Maybe you just do that right there right there behind your pew, and you just take care of that between you and the Lord. But maybe you want to call upon us here, your spiritual family, to pray with you and to encourage you and to lift up your hands and to help you to serve the Lord in a better way. We're ready to do that as well, whatever your need may be. You simply need to make that known by coming to the front. Do it while we stand and while we sing.